The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we'll have small groups tonight. Um, if I don't remember to remind you, it's nice to have name tags. So as you move towards your small groups, if it's not too crowded there, get a name tag on. But I want to take a little time, about a half an hour before we break into small groups. We'll be now moving into a more focused investigation of unpleasantness after tonight. This is uh, <clears throat> from the Samyutta Nikaya, the Vedna Sutta, the Sutta on feeling. The Buddha says, Practitioners, feeling born of eye contact is inconstant, changeable, alterable. Feeling born of ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact. Feeling born of intellect or cognitive activity. Contact is inconstant, changeable, alterable. One who has conviction and belief that these phenomena are this way is called a faith follower. One who has entered the orderliness of rightness, entered the plane of people of integrity, transcended the plane of the run of the mill. One is capable of doing any deed, is incapable of doing any deed by which one would be reborn in hell or in difficult suffering states. And then in the sutta, the Buddha basically divides it into three stages. First, having some conviction or belief that feeling, which seems so important, so personally relevant, that it's pleasant. But instead of that habit of thinking the feeling of any particular experience we're having is so pleasant to me, we're instead noticing that it's inconstant, changeable, alterable, right? We're noticing the ephemeral nature of it. And just having belief, like hearing that, that feeling isn't something to orient our life around, which is what we do. I mean, we're we're literally enslaved by our attraction to pleasant feelings and our efforts to get rid of unpleasant feelings. It drives the whole system of mind and body. So the first stage is to have this conviction or this belief that, just at least on an intellectual level, it doesn't make sense to orient my life. I mean, I notice this a lot when I'm studying, preparing for a talk, because you have to kind of sit and study, you know, and how, and it's very easy for the mind to dangle things in front, like I could look something up on the internet. You know, they're just solving problems. It's more interesting than digging into the material and organizing the material and, or, you know, I could get something to eat or make a cup of tea or walk outside and see what the weather's like or do Wynn walked in, surprised me when I was working at home this afternoon and found me scrubbing down the oven hood. 
like, it was better, more pleasant than doing my study. And so it's like, uh, for me, it's like things get dangled up. And uh, that's like, so what's the conviction? Because when it first gets dangled there, it looks more pleasant than to continue doing what I'm doing. That's why the mind grabs it sometimes, right? What is it about the things that dangle in front of us that causes the mind to take the bait? It's that they're pleasant or unpleasant. You know, oh yeah, I got to do that because it's, I realize this is unpleasant. I have to fix this. I have to, you know, get a different chair because my body's unpleasant. So, but when we have this conviction, this first stage of understanding that, oh, that's just a feeling and it's ephemeral, it's changeable, it comes and goes, it's not going to last long, that pleasantness. Like, so that, for me, I mean, it was partly the aversion of seeing the dirt there and the pleasantness of, you know, the satisfaction of actually accomplishing something, you know, where you start something and you can actually finish it. You put the At first I just tried water, a damp rag, and it, it was so sticky, the stuff on those hoods, you know. But then you just take a little dish soap. It was so satisfying that that gunk, whatever that gunk is, a combination of grease and dust, actually comes off of stainless steel. And, uh, but, but it's a pretty ephemeral pleasantness. You know, it was there, but the, like there's really no satisfaction except for that ephemeral feeling of it being done to some degree, you know. And then it's not there anymore. So, that conviction, like just to play with the conviction around feeling. Yeah, it is pleasant feeling, but I and I could do something to sort of get more of it, or if it's an unpleasant feeling, do something to get rid of it. But the whole thing is so ephemeral. There's always more. This Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it as a river of feeling. Like it just keeps coming, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, never stops. It's flowing on. And so our constant effort to sort of take care of ourselves according to feeling tone <coughs> is a real setup because it we're never done taking care of ourselves because the feeling tone's always changing. And then the next, he basically repeats the paragraph, then one who after pondering with a modicum of discernment has accepted that these phenomena are this way, ephemeral, is called a Dharma follower. So first you're a faith follower, then you're a Dharma follower. So this is more that stage of now you've really reflected. So it's not just that it makes sense intellectually that feeling is pretty ephemeral, but you've been reflecting on feeling. So you know pretty much in your experience to some degree that it doesn't last, that it's not a stable or useful place to find happiness, meaningful happiness or satisfaction. I mean, we've tracked down a lot of pleasant experiences in our life and we've worked hard to avoid a lot of painful experiences in our life. But where has that gotten us? Because we're doing pretty much the same thing. 
So we, we haven't gotten anywhere in all of that pursuit of pleasant and, un, and avoiding unpleasant and ignoring neutral. We haven't progressed toward any kind of being the person who's happy or free of all that. And then the last one is one who knows and sees that these phenomena are this way is called the stream enterer, steadfast, never again destined to states of woe, you know, difficult, painful states. So the idea is when, and this is not as common as the abandoning of craving, but one of the ways the Buddha talks about enlightenment or an arahat or somebody's free is somebody no longer pushed around, no longer confused by feeling tone. This is a very pithy, like four paragraphs where the Buddha talks about these stages. And this represents, those of you who've been coming to the Sunday and Wednesday talks, I'm talking about wisdom in those talks. And one of the ways the Buddha talks about wisdom are is in these three stages of um getting the information, so just getting the right information so it's conceptual, thinking about the information, so you get the information that everything's ephemeral, everything's impermanent. That's one kind of wisdom, the most superficial, but it's still really useful because if we don't get some new information, the nothing challenges our established way of being in the world. We just keep doing the same thing, getting the same results. And then if we reflect on that new information and integrate it and use it to understand, illuminate our experience, then that information, we call it contemplation or reflection. And we become, you know, here the phrase is Dhamma follower. Dhamma, in this case, probably refers to the way it is. Like now our understanding is not arising just cognitively by having some idea, a good idea, but we have some direct experience from our own immediate direct experience that it's ephemeral. And then the more we look at the ephemeral nature of feeling, then one has insight, becomes a stream enter. You know, one of the definitions of somebody who has stream entry, this first stage of awakening, is they're no, they're no longer confused by self-view. Right, self-view, no longer taking things personally or getting caught in self-centered dramas, no longer makes sense because the evidence doesn't line up with the view. So if we've been studying feeling and see that it comes and goes, it lawfully comes and goes, it never stops, right? Okay, now it's feeling, I'm finally there in that feeling, that pleasant feeling, place and I'm set. You know, we never get to that place where we're safe. We've got the feeling tone we want. In a way, enlightenment is the feeling tone, the pleasant feeling tone of no longer being pushed around by feeling. So you can call that pleasantness, and they do in the tradition, I'll mention that a little, I'll kind of review that a little bit later. In one of the places in the tradition 
where they um, the Buddha talks about this. It's sort of a, a really important place in the story of the Buddha. Some of you know this, but you know he was practicing extreme asceticism for a long time, and uh, it was unpleasant sensations. I'll just share a little of that. So this is just uh, from the Middle Length Discourse 36, where he's talking about how he practiced before his big insight under the Bodhi tree. You know, and he was basically going to outdo anybody who was doing ascetic practices. So he's doing some of these breathing practices. Here's how he describes. Suppose I practice further the breath, uh, the breathingless meditation. So I stop the in-breaths and out-breaths through my mouth, nose, and ears. <laughs> While I did so, there was a violent burning in my body, just as if two strong people were to seize a weaker person by both arms and roast him her over a pit of hot coals. So too, while I stopped the in and out breaths through, the, through my, my mouth, nose, and ears, there was a violent burning in my body. It goes on. Um, and then he says, suppose I take very little food, a handful each time, whether bean soup or lentil soup, pea soup. So I took very little food, a handful each time. And then, you know, he gets smaller and smaller amounts. My limbs became like the jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo stems. Because of eating so little, my backside became like a camel's hoof. Because of eating so little, the projections of my spine stood forth like corded beads. Because of eating so little, my ribs jutted out as gaunt as crazy rafters of an old roofless barn. And he goes on and on to describe what that was like. I thought whatever recluses in the past have experienced painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion, this is the utmost, there is none beyond this. And whatever recluses and Brahmins in the future will experience as painful, racking, piercing feelings, piercing feelings due to exertion, this is the utmost, there is no, there is none beyond this. So he's basically saying, the painful feelings I experience, nobody's experienced more painful feelings than me. I've done, you know, I've matched whatever anybody else has done. And so he, so this is the Buddha, you know, you can, Imagine he's really sincere. He's mastered a lot of meditation techniques. He's learned to really concentrate his mind. And now he's, he's trying to find, looking for the peace that he intuits is available. And he, because asceticism was big in his time, he tried that. And now he's sort of at the end of the rope, has matched the asceticism of anybody else. And he sees the results, which is, I'm not happy. <laughs> and uh, so, <clears throat> but he's, you know, he, like anybody with real wisdom, they trust their direct experience. So now he's got the results of his experiment of asceticism. And the results are in. And he's wondering, is there another way? Because this isn't the way. I've done it to the nth degree. If this were the way, I would have found it. But it's not the way. Rejecting sense experience, denying the body, is not the way to happiness. Right? Doesn't matter what anybody else says, because he explored it himself. He could say, no, this isn't the way. 
So he had the thought, as any wise person would. Is there another way? And then, this is so interesting about our mind, to just drop in a question without trying to get the answer. So he dropped in the question, and then a memory came to mind of his experience as a little boy. They don't, that doesn't really say what age, but you could imagine like a five-year-old. And it was uh, festival day. His father was sort of the local chieftain, and they were doing some kind of spring plowing ceremony, first ceremonial plow or something like that, according to the commentaries. And they put the little prince, the Buddha, to be under this rose apple tree and maybe a little container to keep him from wandering off or whatever. And everyone went to see the ceremonial plowing. They left him alone. And his mind, because there was, you know, a lot of positive, pleasant conditions, his mind really settled. And, you know, the Buddha had good uh, instincts. If you buy into the Buddhist cosmology, he had been cultivating the necessary qualities of mind, a personality for incalculable lifetimes. So he had a lot of good uh, sort of predispositions in his mind. And so, and this has happened, uh, there's a Thai teacher that has come to Spirit Rock, uh, one of the well-known forest Ajans, Ajahn Jumian uh, from Thailand. And this, uh, something similar happened to him where he was about that age, five, and his parents kind of walked in the room and he was uh, not asleep. He was in some kind of state, but couldn't be roused out of it. And... uh they were really afraid, like maybe he was having some kind of seizure or something like that. And they asked the local monks, and they said, no, you don't need to worry about him. He's in a jhanic state. And they just had slipped into a very concentrated state. And I had a chance to study with Sister Dipakara, a really powerful teacher from Burma. She was She's one of Pak Sayadaw's uh, students and now teachers under him. And uh, she was in the West here in the States, so I got to sit and practice with her for a while. And uh, she also talked about a story as a young girl, just sort of entering these states of absorption, these really beautiful and pleasant, powerfully pleasant states, healing states of concentration. So this happened to the Buddha there under the rose apple tree. And he remembered this, right? So you can just think of him. He's been practicing for a couple of years, extreme asceticism, after having practiced really deep concentration states and getting to the end of the rope, seeing this isn't the way, he remembers the pleasantness of the mind that's deeply settled. And because he asked himself, is there another way? And that memory came up. And then the question arose, is that the way? And the answer arose, yeah, that's the way. In other words, we don't have to be, he didn't, didn't, doesn't have to be afraid of pleasantness, the pleasantness of the mind settling. So then the Buddha realized that pleasantness isn't inherently bad, right? You know how in asceticism and that, that sort of way of thinking, because pleasant experience, like having a lot of wealth, or good sex, or good food, or whatever 
pleasant experience might be, good friends. Because when we have those pleasant experiences, the mind gets attached or wants more or doesn't want it to end. And then we see, well, that's suffering. And that causes a lot of, sets in motion other suffering. Then we think, well, it's the food I have to reject or the sex I have to reject or the wealth I have to reject. But it's not that. It's the clinging, the wanting the pleasantness of these things to be more than what it is. It's ephemeral. It's there for a while, and then it goes away. And if we need it to be there always, we'll cause suffering for ourselves and others. That's what life teaches us if we pay attention. All the wars, all the acts of greed and aggression, they're basically about feeling, the pleasant feeling or the unpleasant feeling. Right? Not uh, thinking that somehow through some action I can get the pleasant feeling to last or I can get rid of the unpleasant feeling forever. But as human beings, they come and go. So the Buddha, you can, it makes sense that people gravitate towards asceticism until you look carefully and see it's sort of uh, based on a misperception. It's not that world of experience that's the problem. It's the clinging. It's the tightness that's the problem. The grasping after pleasant, the pushing away of the unpleasant. So the Buddha, you know, received some healthy food for a while and built his strength back up. And uh, his people he were practicing with, they were hardcore ascetics, so they thought he had gone weak and they left him. And so the Buddha was left alone, gaining back his strength, eating good food, and eventually, feeling now balanced, sat under the Bodhi tree. And what did he do? The first thing he did under the Bodhi tree? He let his mind settle into really peaceful, pleasant states. Right? Because... When the mind is allowed to settle in peaceful states, like when you allow yourself in the middle of the afternoon to relax, you know, you're having a difficult day, but you decide to lie down for five minutes, or you, you, you know, walk outside, like, I probably walked outside five, four or five times this afternoon, uh, yeah, at least, at least, maybe, maybe five times. Just because it was pleasant, you know, to get out of the being inside and to feel the wind and to look at the grayness of the clouds and feel the cold fall air. And so we need to recognize how balancing it is to, to actually use pleasantness as medicine because to open to what's pleasant without attachment creates some greater tolerance of unpleasant, allows us to actually be interested in the unpleasant. When we're getting unremitting unpleasantness, the mind gets brittle and aversive, unavoidably. It's not that we're a bad practitioner, it's just lawful. So a good practitioner knows how to find pleasantness. That's why we're spending so much time in the Course 
you know, the majority of the course, investigating pleasant experience. It's available. It's always available because it's a relative thing. I mean, even in our really difficult states where everything's going wrong, you know, if you just look at the thing that's less difficult, the transition from noticing what's really difficult to noticing what's less difficult is a direction of pleasantness, right? So, it's pleasantness, unpleasantness isn't an absolute thing. It's a relative thing that arises based on our mind's conditioning. So it's possible to find pleasantness. And we need to be skilled at doing that. And this story from the time of the Buddha is basically his, um, you know, this archetype or this uh, um, um, metaphor for the use of pleasantness. So after he sat under the Bodhi tree, then he, you know, got concentrated. He says after each stage of his mind settling, I entered in a, I entered upon and abided in the first jhana, this first stage of absorption, which is accompanied, accompanied by applied and sustained thought, or sometimes thought of as contact, connecting with the experience at hand and sustaining. Right? And I mentioned that in the guide it said, like there's a certain pleasantness just in connecting with the in-breath or whatever the meditation object is. And there's a more refined pleasantness to sustain that contact, that awareness. With rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, right? The seclusion, the pleasantness of seclusion means because I know the breath and because I'm sustaining awareness with the in-breath and then sustaining, connecting and sustaining awareness with the out-breath, my mind is secluded from whatever else it would be thinking about and worrying about and planning and comparing and judging. It's not doing that. So it's secluded and it's seclusion from that other activity, which of course is agitating, is pleasant. So much of what is ultimately really pleasant is not about the experience, but more about what's not there. You know, the this is why we talk a lot in Buddhism about the joy of seclusion or the joy of renunciation, the joy of what the mind is not doing, as opposed to the joy of, you know, watching my favorite program. <laughs> I often catch uh, John Oliver's um, last week tonight program. That's the next day it's on YouTube. Uh, it's an HBO series, and it's great, great sort of uh, journalism. Unfortunately, our best journalists are comedians these days. But that's another story, another lament. But uh, but I realize, you know, like I always look forward to Monday because I get to watch this thing, and uh, but it's always about something that's terrible in the world. This one is about the oil fields in North Dakota and the bad safety records. In the, the, it was a Balkan oil fields in Western North Dakota. Is that how you say Balkan? Balkan, Balkan oil fields. That, um, but I noticed it's like first there was a sort of uh, expected pleasantness, <laughs> but then I, because I was paying a little attention, I noticed everything I was hearing was not pleasant. <laughs> I mean, 
he was making jokes, you know, I mean, this sarcasm. So, you know, they throw in sort of silly stuff. But what was being revealed was very unpleasant, you know, just like all the sort of reflections on the world we live in and how it operates and the kind of ignorance and greed and, you know, everything else that make make up our world. So it's just sort of interesting, you know, dynamic of like, I think Lily Tomlin had the line, if you're going to tell the truth, you better make it funny or they'll kill you. <laughs> and, you know, I think they kind of get this. It's like, yeah, they. this is a good way to deliver, but we, we want to understand both sides of the equation, like the unpleasantness and then the pleasantness of like laughing and sort of, I don't even know what makes it pleasant. <laughs> that would be another day. <laughs> like to to really see, I think I think it's a little bit like jhana <laughs> or absorption in that the mind isn't doing what else it would be doing, right? Because it's absorbed in a silly TV program or you know video program, and so it gets a little break from being Mark, who's got to prepare a talk. Or Mark, who's got to do this or do that. We have a little freedom from whatever psychic weight, our identity, who we are, what we have to do, whatever that feels like, right then and there, it's not active. It's been put down because the mind is paying attention, is absorbed in this other activity. So he just goes on like that. Oh, and the last phrase then, at each stage, he says, But such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. Right? So that as the mind settled and as the mind felt the pleasantness of that settled, that that, uh, pleasantness of seclusion, of letting go of mental activity, right? So the mind is not, but that pleasant feeling didn't invade the mind. It didn't trigger proliferation. Whoa, this is so good. <laughs> Wait till I tell my friends or whatever. Mental proliferation might arise. It didn't invade the mind. It didn't remain. Right? So it was just something that showed itself because it was the natural with the contact, with the knowing of that subtleness of mind, that concentration. Right? unavoidably, there's a feeling to that seclusion, that quietness, a strong, pleasant feeling. But no mind grasping it. So, just to inspire us a little bit about pleasantness, not to be afraid of it, to appreciate it, Venerable Analeo has a great chapter on feeling tone in his book Satipatthana, and uh, including several pages on the pleasant feeling. And he has a, some riffs on the story that I just told you about about the Buddha's awakening under the Bodhi tree and remembering this time as a young child, and. Uh, This is his comments or some of his comments here. 
After his awakening, the Buddha declared himself to be the one who lived in happiness. This statement clearly shows that unlike some of his ascetic contemporaries, the Buddha was no longer afraid of pleasant feelings. As he pointed out, it was precisely the successful eradication of all mental unwholesomeness that caused his happiness and delight. Right? So basically, one aspect of the Buddhist teachings is recognizing that the happiness, the pleasantness of renunciation is a pleasantness to be explored. You don't need to be worried about that kind of pleasantness. The pleasantness of having a nice new car is something we need to be really vigilant about. Otherwise, we're going to be really a suffering being when somebody scratches it, right? But appreciating and getting to know the pleasantness of renunciation, you see, because whatever happens, we can renounce that too. So it's a kind of happiness that goes everywhere because it's a happiness of non-clinging. It's not about, right, because we cannot cling to anything. So it's a very stable kind of happiness because no matter what experiences arise, experience arises for us, we can practice not clinging to that experience. So in that sense, it's in the direction of an unconditioned happiness because we can let go and let go and let go and good things can be happening, we can let go and difficult things can be happening and we can let go. So what could actually disturb the happiness of letting go? of not clinging or uh, renunciation. Just a couple more sentences and then we'll break into groups. The presence of delight and non-central joy among the awakened disciples of the Buddha often found its expression in poetic descriptions of natural beauty. Indeed, the early Buddhist nuns and monks delighted in their way of life as testified by a visiting king who described them as smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful, and plainly delighting, living at ease, and unruffled. And then, the ingenuity of the Buddha's approach was not only his ability to to discriminate between forms of happiness and pleasure which are to be pursued and those which are to be avoided, but also his skillful harnessing of non-sensual pleasure for progress, for the progress along the path to realization. Numerous discourses describe the conditional dependence of wisdom and realization on the presence of non-sensual joy and happiness. According to these descriptions based on the presence of delight, joy, and happiness arise and lead to the causal sequence to concentration and realization. And this is something you come across quite often in the discourses where the Buddha will be talking about joy and how that's the beginning sequence to the mind settling, to insight, and to letting go, to freedom. So I thought in the small groups tonight, some of the themes you might bring up, um, So just sharing experiences like in the last several weeks we've been looking at pleasantness. So just 
explaining those, you know, in, in a sort of moment-to-moment way, that recognition that arose in your mind, oh, this is pleasant. So just acknowledging in your small group sharing a moment of clearly connecting and maybe sustaining with an experience that had a pleasant feeling tone. And then maybe you could share like the birth of attachment or share how non-attachment, attachment did not arise and what that was like. So with that awareness of the pleasantness, what emotion was or was not said emotion. So that might be something that you might talk about in your small group. In one of the discourses, the Buddha, I mentioned, you know, how one description of enlightenment is to be uh, not pushed around by feeling tone. And the way the translator translated that is disjoined. So the mind was disjoined from pleasantness, disjoined from neutrality, just dis joined from unpleasantness. So, in the world, but not of it. Aware of feeling tone, but not pushed around. Intimate with feeling tone. Not unaware. Not afraid of the feeling tone, the pleasantness or unpleasantness. But intimate, but not caught or pushed around. And this is, that you hear this in so many different ways about how to, the mind can be aware but not caught. So this is this insight into the impersonal nature. Don't get caught in the idea of no self, what that means, how can I be a no self. It's really about how the the actual pragmatic experience of no self is to be intimate right there in the middle, but not there's nobody, no me getting pushed around by the intimacy of that experience, by the contact, by the way it is. So it's there's no friction, no resistance. So you could talk about that experience of freedom in the small group. And related to that is, uh, you might share how strongly there is an inclination to have a story when there's a pleasant or unpleasant feeling. And then the story reinforces the unpleasantness or pleasantness. We think the story and then the story itself is pleasant or unpleasant. And then there's the unpleasant feeling because we just thought the story and the unpleasant feeling triggers the story, like wanting to think that again, have that same image again which has an unpleasant or pleasant feeling. And the unpleasant feeling triggers more thinking. So there's that engine. So that's something you can talk about is getting caught in that feedback loop where the feeling tone is driving the activity of self. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.